The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Good morning, sinners. Ah, good, you're all here. You're here, and I'm glad to be here with you this morning uh, to share a word uh, with you. Um, the word that I want to share with you uh, this morning comes from Paul's letter to Timothy, the second letter, so 2 Timothy, chapter 1, the first eight verses. 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 8. If you found it, say amen. If you're still looking, say help me, Lord. All right, it goes something like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Amen. Today, what I have to say to you can be summarized in three words. Stir it up. Repeat after me. Stir it up. Stir it up. Good. We can all go now, right? We're done. Now, when I was in your shoes, when I was an undergrad, I had set a goal for myself that I would read 50 new books a year. It's a pretty daunting goal that comes out to about six books or so, or seven books uh, uh, within a week or within a month. And so I used to primarily read some nonfiction and some classical literature and those sorts of things. And a friend of mine approached me and said, hey, why don't you read something modern for a change? And I said, okay. What do you think I should read? And he gave me a book by an author named John Grisham. Now, for those of you who may not know, John Grisham is an author who likes to uh, write books that uh, deal with the legal world, books like uh, The Advocate and The Firm. And the particular book that my friend gave me was called The Testament. The Testament is about a billionaire and his family. And this billionaire's will is being read out to his family. And Uh, His family is sort of champing at the bit to see who gets how much money. And um, the video comes on. It's a video of the the billionaire himself who comes on the video and says that um, I um, was going to share all of my money with you equally, but I realize you're only loving me because of my money, so I've decided to change my will and give all my money to charity. And with that, the screen goes blank, and there's a long gambit of legal wrangling and family that is upset, and that's how the book proceeds. Well, Paul's letter to Timothy is a different kind of testament. It's sort of the last will and testament of Paul. Paul is in prison. He is pretty sure that this is his last time in prison, in fact, that he's not going to make it out alive. And when a person is put in that position, 
uh, their thinking often becomes very clear and their priorities become very important. And we see that in this book of Timothy, 2 Timothy, where Paul is writing down what I believe he thinks are the most important things that Timothy needs to know. Paul had a special relationship with Timothy in terms of mentoring him throughout his life. And Paul is really passing on the mantle from the first generation of disciples to the second. You see, Paul knew Timothy for a long time. Timothy was with Paul when Paul was first arrested in Jerusalem and kept in touch with Paul and was mentored by Paul throughout his pastoral ministry. We know from Scripture and from tradition that Timothy was pretty much an average guy. He wasn't uh, particularly uh, externally or inwardly uh, particularly gifted. Um, He wasn't given well to speaking. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul exhorts Timothy to be bold in getting up and talking in front of people. And Paul isn't, uh, and is believed that Timothy was a rather sickly person because later on Paul advises Timothy about some medicine and other treatments to take to help him in his illness. And this, this letter was written in a time of intense Christian persecution during the reign of the emperor Nero. It was a time of great angst and of great turmoil, of great uncertainty and anxiety. It was a time very similar, you could say, to our own. And Paul is exhorting Timothy and encouraging him with what he needs to know in order to carry the gospel into the next generation. And so Paul is telling Timothy that we did not receive one thing. We received three things, and this is what we are to do with them. But before he says that and goes into that, Paul says to Timothy, you know, I know you, Timothy. I've known you for a long time. You can do this. And you know how I know you can do this, Timothy? Because of two things. First of all, I laid hands on you. I know you. I've taught you. I brought you into the ministry. I know you have the strength and the power to do this. And more than that, Timothy, I know where you came from. And it's kind of interesting that he mentions Timothy's grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, and says that, I know this faith lived in your grandmother and your mother and now lives in you also. In other words, Timothy, you have this this legacy of faith that lives in you. Maybe you come from a legacy of faith. Maybe you come from a family that has a long tradition in the faith. And you too are beneficiaries of that faith. And that's great that you come from that lineage. I too, as Dean Porcella said, am a beneficiary of that legacy of faith through my paternal grandparents and my maternal grandparents. So I'm the third generation in the faith. And I never met three of my four grandparents because they weren't alive then. But I did live with one of my grandparents, my paternal grandmother, my my father's mother. And I remember keenly and very vividly the fact that she would pray at least two or three hours a day and pray for the entire world, every one of her children and her grandchildren, all the problems she read in the newspaper. She was a tremendous intercessor. And talking to people who knew her husband, my grandfather, 
and getting to know this person, sort of an enigmatic and a mystery in my own life as to who he was, I came to find out from the elders in my own community in India that his personality and his quirks and even his physical appearance resemble my own. And so I know and I'm blessed from that legacy of faith. I'm sure many of you are too. But it's not enough that you come from a legacy of faith. It is important that that faith be your own. You have to own it for yourself. Otherwise, it means nothing. So Paul says that we did not receive a spirit of fear. Now those of you who know Greek know that commonly the word here is the word phobos. That's where we get the word phobia from, but that's not the word that is used here. The word here is the word delia, which means a freezing fear, a paralyzing fear, a fear that makes you stop dead in your tracks. It's the kind of fear that you get when your brain gets blocked and frozen during an exam. It brings with it the connotation of timidity and cowardiceness. But that is not the spirit that we have been given. What, 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 what have we been given? We have been given three things, three mental dispositions. The first is a mental disposition of power. This is the word dunamis, where we get the word dynamite from. It is explosive, powerful, sudden. Paul exhibits this power when he was shipwrecked on the island of Malta and he crawled up from the beach and he saw a fire and some wood was thrown into the fire and it drew out a serpent and that serpent bit Paul on the hand. People turned away in fear because they were accustomed to the people of that land for people to swell up and die from that. But what happened? Paul yanked that snake off and he kept on living. Why? Because of the power of Jesus. We need to speak the name of Jesus over addictions in our lives and say that in the name of Jesus you will not give in to temptation. We need to speak the name of Jesus in our relationships and say that Jesus is going to be the first thing in our lives. We need to speak the name of Jesus in our churches and our communities that are spiritually asleep. You know, as a missionary doctor in a tropical area, I was accustomed to at least once every day treating a snake bite. And I am deathly afraid of snakes. And there were times where uh, people would come in with a snake bite and you would have to ask, in order to give the correct type of antivenom, what kind of snake bit you? I'm sure Dr. Eshelman will know this and understand this. But what kind of snake bit them? So you have to go look for the fang marks. And then you find the fang marks on the person's body. And then you have to go find the antivenom. And sometimes, because the villagers knew that we would ask about this, I would ask them, so what kind of snake bit them? And they said, we don't know, but they would hold up a sack and say, hey, we brought the snake with us. <laughs> and there was something wriggling in the bag. So we, did, we received a mental disposition of power. Second, we received a mental disposition of love. Most of you know this word. The word is agape. It's the, the perfect love, the divine love, the love of God. It's not like the love of man. It's not like the love of me, which is imperfect because I am sinful. But thanks be to God that his love 
resides in me, so that even when people offend me or sin against me or deceive me, I can still love on them because Christ first loved us. This is the love that seeks the best of everyone involved, but especially those of the family of faith. It's a love that's exemplified by Jesus in the verse we saw in the video in Galatians 2.20. The love of Jesus who gave himself up for us. And lastly, and certainly not least, is the mental disposition of self-discipline or a sound mind. Now I'm going to put on my, my doctor hat for a minute here. Did you know that you have the power to save your own mind? Did you know that you have the power to change your mind? Did you know that you have the power to change the actual structure of your brain? It's true. From a spiritual point of view, it's the ability to control yourself in the face of panic or passion or pain that only Christ can give. Furthermore, it calls us to having a sound mind and to having self-discipline. So, what is the ninth fruit of the Spirit? Does anyone know? Love, joy, peace, peace, Self-control, right? Self-control. So that's why I exhort those I talk to, don't ever say you couldn't help yourself. Because the truth of the matter is that if you are a follower of Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in you, then you can control yourself. Think of it this way. You can only be a servant of Christ once you are a master of yourself. Not only is it important what you think and how you think, but how you think of yourself. In Philippians it says, whatever is good, whatever is right, whatever is pure, think on these things. In Ephesians 6, we talk about the armor of God. What is the very first piece of the armor of God? It is the helmet of salvation. Why the helmet of salvation? Because the helmet protects your head. And inside your head is, I hope, your brain. That's why it is important not only what you think but how you, and how you think, but how you think of yourself. And not think of yourself as a downtrodden, marginalized person, but, but the person who can stand up straight, roll your shoulders back, and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because the Holy Spirit lives in me. And that's why Paul says to Timothy, you need to fan into flames the gift of the Spirit, or as the King James says, you need to stir it up. We have all these gifts that lay inside of us, but they are dormant. And just like in this season where we have campfires and bonfires outside and the, the embers die down and then you take a rod or a stick and you poke that fire, what happens? The flame comes back up even more and roars even more. So that must happen in our own lives as well. We must fan into flames or stir up the gifts of the Spirit. So... Here is a model of the human brain. It weighs about three pounds in a human. It's equal in weight in males and females. Inside this structure, you have everything that you have in terms of your thoughts, your memories, 
your personality, your preferences, your movements, everything sits inside this three pound piece of fat, which is essentially what the brain is. When you take a brain out of a, of a cadaver and you hold it like this, it starts to fall between your fingers. That's how fragile it is. If you leave it on a table for too long, it'll flatten into a pancake from its own weight. But we, God has given us the ability not only to change how we think, but also how we think of ourselves. And that actually changes the anatomy inside our brain. That actually changes the structures and the neurons and the circuitry inside our brain. Now, why do we do all these things? Why do we have these mental dispositions? So that we can testify for the gospel. So when you live your life for Jesus Christ out in the world, not on campus, not in the dorms, but out in the world, which is not modern, not postmodern, not post-Christian, but increasingly anti-Christian, you will get labeled, you will get singled out, and you will get persecuted. But when you stir up the gifts of the Spirit, God will take you on the greatest adventure of your life. But you have to stir it up. I'm going to close with one story. So there was a patient I was treating once in India, and he was a, a local chieftain. He was in charge of a local village. And he was a very influential person. His child actually came. His child, um, his, uh, he had a, a child that was... Um, in a car accident and uh, required extensive surgery. And I, he came to my hospital, and I am not a trained surgeon, but he said, I want you to, to, to treat him, and I want you to fix him. So I did. If you talk to my students, they'll tell you about the times I actually had to learn how to operate on people, and this was one such case. And he also says to my, me in my ear, he says, oh, and one thing I forgot to mention, he was one of the most uh, virulent anti-Christian people in the area. He had several times tried to uh, come into the hospital. He had led, um, he had led groups of people to try to uh, raid the hospital for medical supplies and all kinds of things. And he says, oh, and by the way, um, if anything happens to my son, I will burn your hospital down. I said, okay, no pressure. So you take this child, in, his, this young man, into the operating room, and we, we operate on him, and there's a lot of extensive injuries and burns and all kinds of things, and we're able to do multiple things and, and patch him up. And um, we were able to, to take care of him. About two weeks, his, his son walked out of the hospital, and he said, and he came to me, his father came to me, and he, he thanked me, and he said, well, you saved your hospital this time. I said, okay, okay, that's fine. So we, we, we were uh, in the process of opening a new uh, church, of building a new church building out in the middle of nowhere for this new group of believers, few new families. And um, it was adjacent to some of his own property. He said, you can't build a church on this property. You just can't build a church on this property. We won't allow it. I said, okay, well, we'll, we'll see what happens. I mean, you can see the church is going up. Um, we're going to have, in one month, we'll have a worship service in this sanctuary watch on Easter Sunday. We will have a worship service in the sanctuary. So night before, the, you know, when the church was completed, night before the, of Easter Sunday, the people in the uh, congregation said, you know, we should go and like, watch the church building in case it burns down and someone tries to come or whatever. I said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to sit in this room in someone's home. We're going to pray all night, but we're not going to go and guard this church. 
Next morning, we went there, sunrise service, church was okay, it was all intact. And we had our Easter Sunday worship service. And it was that village chieftain who came to the worship service. And at the end of the service, he comes up to me and says, you know, I have a confession to make. I said, what's that? He said, I was leading a group of about 20 people with torches to burn down this church last night. But what, I don't understand where you got those security guards who guarded your church. You, they protected the church. They wouldn't let us pass. And I said, what do you mean? He said, there were these huge 20 feet tall white guards you had with wings and they were yelling with such loud noise. They wouldn't let us pass. We had to turn around and come back. We were afraid for our lives. Then I then realized that there were angels guarding that church that night. Some time later, I found, when, as a matter of fact, this past year when I went to India on a short-term mission trip, I came to know that this, that this, uh, uh, this chief uh, of the village had been baptized and came to faith in Christ. More than that, I received a phone call two hours ago that said that he'd just been accepted into a seminary and is now becoming a pastor. Lives changed. People transformed. The world turned upside down for Jesus Christ. But you have to do something first. You have to. What are those three words again? You have to stir it up. God bless.